Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Raytheon Missile Systems is one of Tucson's largest employers and biggest economic drivers. What does its future look like? This week, we find out. Thirteen thousand people go to work at Raytheon Missile Systems every day. I obviously knew that Missile Systems was growing, and I knew that there was quite a bit of growth, but um, to actually come back here and see it has been absolutely amazing. That's Wes Kramer, the president of Tucson-based Raytheon Missile Systems. He took over the company just about a year ago and has held a number of other positions with Raytheon. We sat down with Kramer late last year to talk about the future of the company, starting with its recent expansion. Not only the growth that gets talked about of the number of employees that we've hired and that growth, but to see the new facilities here on campus and to just see how many new programs that we're actually developing with new technology to meet, you know, new warfighter needs is absolutely amazing. When you talk about warfighter needs, uh you were in the back seat of F-111s, F-15s. Interesting position now to be at the top of the company making a lot of the weapons. Does that change how you think about your job? Well, I think I've always had that focus since I started out my career in the Air Force to try to always um, think about it from the warfighter perspective. And um, to now be in this position of leading a large organization and, and of you know, primarily delivering weapons that go to our warfighters, I think it does give me a unique perspective on that. But you know, we have a lot of veterans. We have over 2,000 veterans here on our team here at uh, Raytheon Missile Systems. So we, we have that perspective from a lot of different, but I think it's unique of having somebody leading the organization with that skill set. How many people are working here? So we've got over 13,000 employees here at the, at the plant site here in, in the Tucson area. And I think that, you know, the way I think about it is that Raytheon at its heart is a technology company. And I think that, you know, especially here in Tucson, it's thought of, yeah, it's the missile company, but we do much more than that. I mean, we develop leading edge technologies the, um, that defend our nation and make the world a safer place. And I think a great example of that is in ballistic missile defense. So we here in Tucson pioneered what's called hit to kill technology. And that's the idea of hitting a missile with a missile or a bullet with a bullet in outer space with no explosives, no warhead, and it's just the kinetic energy of two things hitting at very high speed that essentially disintegrates it um, in outer space. And when you think about those kinds of technologies, and there's lots of those, you know, now it's all about hypersonics and things that travel in excess of Mach 5. All of those technologies are being pioneered here. And that's why our demand for science, technology, engineering, and math, and, and we've done a great job of, of recruiting, you know, um, young employees that are excited about working with technology. When you talk about science, uh, technology, engineering, math, that's uh, what everybody calls STEM, is the pipeline full or do you have to prime the pipeline for your future employees at elementary, middle school, high school levels? Yeah, so we don't take any chances on that. We kind of do all of that. And I mean, that's one of the things I'm most proud of the employees here is the, the 
outreach that we do, especially to elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. So we have, um, you know, our employees, their parents, their grandparents, and um, and they love to share their excitement. And so we have multiple programs where we reach out um, to. Uh, younger kids to get them interested in the STEM curriculums. You know, we also have a, a partnership with one of the high schools here where we actually work and they come in as co-ops and most of them are from a disadvantaged kind of background and we now have come full circle of kids that had never even considered going to college while they're in high school got tutored by a Raytheon engineer um, decided to go to college which was a big first step majored in engineering and are now back here working as a Raytheon employee and uh, and when I can tell stories like that and it's the pride that our employees have not only of being an employee of Raytheon but of what they do for the Tucson community. You mentioned you think of Raytheon as a tech company for students graduating from the University of Arizona right around the corner from here who are in engineering or any of those other STEM fields. They have a lot of options they didn't used to have in addition to Raytheon. How do you convince those young people to come into Raytheon and not go to Microsoft or Google or Apple or Amazon or wherever. So you know what's amazing about that is that as there's been more competition for technical backgrounds and for those graduates it's actually helped us because one of the critiques we used to get years ago was that people didn't want to come to Tucson or stay in Tucson because they thought Raytheon was the only game in town and they wouldn't have options and now there's more options and I'm sure you saw the you know the recent announcement of Tucson is really kind of one of the emerging tech centers um, in the United States we actually think that helps us in the long term in recruiting do you have a hard time convincing students that they want to come to a, a missile company and not to a, an internet company or something like that? So, you know, um, we're not for everybody. Right? I mean, that's the reality. What we do is we do national defense. And um, we tend to see that the employees that come here and stay here for a career um, usually are very patriotic in nature, often have some connection to the military, you know, an aunt, an uncle, um, a father, a mother, something like that. But the other thing that, that we do is we really try to connect them to our overall mission statement you know, which is one global integrated team creating innovative solutions to make the world a safer place. When it comes to Tucson and Raytheon, company's been here a long time when it was announced the merger coming forward with United Technologies, a lot of people got worried that Raytheon could go away. Is there any, con is that a valid concern? No, I mean, Raytheon's not going away. We have such a large base here of not only employees, but facilities um, and investment. And so, you know, there will be an upcoming decision about where the headquarters goes, but the headquarters is not a large number of jobs. The, the core competency of what we do here in Tucson will remain in Tucson regardless of, of those decisions. Let's talk a little bit about uh what you do here in Tucson. You hinted around that the future is coming. Hypersonic weapons, you even talked about uh, missile defense, uh, what President Reagan called Star Wars. That's all coming out of here. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly um, that's been, you know, since uh, President Reagan made his famous speech in the 80s um, around the, you know, creating a missile defense shield, a lot of that activity has been here. You know, the next um, new wave is hypersonics, and we talked a little bit about, you know, that's weapons that travel, 
you know, faster than Mach 5 or five times the speed of sound. And those create a whole different set of challenges for a defensive network. And uh, we've said many times that we actually think the counter hypersonic market will be significantly larger than the hypersonic market. And we play in both. So we are developing uh, hypersonic uh, um, concepts. We're also looking at how you counter those things, how you do the birth to death tracking of that and the ability to intercept those. And that's going to be one of the positives of the merger is this part of Raytheon merging with our integrated defense systems will give us that end-to-end -end capabilities that we'll be able to offer that solution um, to our warfighters. The next generation of stuff you go from where we are today to Mach 5 is then eventually to getting to speed of light weapons. So um, lasers, um, high-powered microwaves, of course cyber happens at the speed of light. Um, all of those things like that are also areas where we're investing and where we're winning programs and developing new and exciting technologies. The stuff of science fiction, uh, yeah. not so much fiction anymore. The Buck Rogers stuff is not so much fiction anymore, right? But of course, still doing uh, what those of us who were around in the 80s watching Top Gun, uh, you know, we saw Tom Cruise shooting off uh, Raytheon products, probably see it in the new movie too. So there's some lower, t not lower tech, but lower tech than that weapons that are, are also made here. Yeah, so, I mean, our, obviously our bread and butter is what we would class as kinetic um, weapons, right? So things, uh, metal on metal, things, that's still a large portion of what we do. And when we look to the future and recognize that at least for the near future, you know, hypersonics will be in small quantities. Um, things like high-powered microwaves and lasers um, will be used to so-called thin the herd in the event of an attack. But at the end of the day, you still have to have, you know, kinetic weapons for both offense and defensive uh, capabilities. And that's a large part of what we're doing. And what's been really interesting and part of, back to your first question of what surprised me, is it's been amazing to see how many of those systems that have been, we've been producing for 30, 40, or 50 years are now in tech refresh cycles of where we're putting new technology, giving them new capability, giving them multi-mission capability, and essentially saying, you know, your old AMRAM of the 1980s is nothing like the AMRAM of today, and you can go through the whole portfolio and say that same kind of thing. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. You know, we're proud to be a part of uh, Southern Arizona, and we appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. That was Wes Kramer, the president of Tucson-based Raytheon Missile Systems. While we were at Raytheon, we sat down with three young employees involved in the company's mentoring programs. Danny Ibarra is the first in her family to go to college. She says Raytheon's outreach to the University of Arizona is what brought her to the company. It was until I got to college and started to interact with all the companies and stuff like that where I found um, what I wanted to do. Ibarra echoes something Raytheon President Wes Kramer said. She's now giving back to the next generation of engineers as a coach and a mentor. Maureen McCarthy is also part of the mentoring program. The California native is targeting a younger generation at Desert View High School. So I go every other week to check on the girls and I do um, science and math projects with them and we get to tell them a lot about what it's like to be a female in our field. It's an all-female class and they a lot of the time stay in the program for all four years and knowing that they can do that just makes me feel good because now I'm one of the women that are representing us for the 
younger age. Raytheon's mentoring program is not aimed exclusively at women. Roman Begay, who went to Northern Arizona University and began work for Raytheon in Massachusetts before transferring to Tucson, is also involved in mentoring. He's working with students at San Javier Mission School. I did grow up on the reservation, on the Navajo reservation in Northern Arizona. Um, there isn't a lot of opportunities on the reservation, um, just pursuing any type of career. And we're showing these kids that, you know, Native Americans are in these STEM fields that, you know, they can make it past high school and pursue college careers, um, pursue getting, you know, maybe a bachelor's degree or a master's degree at that point. Last year, Raytheon Missile Systems announced it plans to hire about 1,000 new employees. That's on top of the nearly 2,000 it's added since 2016. This week, we're taking a look at the future of Raytheon Missile Systems, one of the largest employers in southern Arizona. The Raytheon parent company has six divisions, including the Tucson-based Missile Systems. According to the company's website, foreign sales represent 30% of total company sales each year. Between January of 2015 and December 31st of 2019, according to the Department of Defense, Raytheon Missile Systems was contracted for 69 weapon sales to foreign countries, totaling a little more than $24 billion. The dozens of foreign customers include South Korea, Ukraine, Saudi Arabia, NATO partners, Mexico, and Chile. We wanted to get a sense of Raytheon's role on the international stage as a defense contractor. Todd Harrison is a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. He says companies like Raytheon are more a tool of foreign policy rather than an actor within the Pentagon or State Department. Defense companies basically uh, try to anticipate the military's needs, uh, try to anticipate what the warfighter is going to need, what senior leaders are thinking, and then respond to that. Uh, they have very little, if any, influence in shaping those events and shaping how uh, senior leaders choose or choose not to get involved in foreign conflicts. When it comes to that demand, companies like Raytheon, um, they obviously sell a lot to the Pentagon, uh, the U.S. military. How much conversation back and forth is there between Raytheon and the military when it comes to, or any defense contractor in the military, when it comes to weapons development? Does the does the Pentagon go to the, the military industrial complex and say, we need a weapon that does X, everybody go figure it out? Or does Raytheon, for example, come to the Pentagon and say, hey, we just made this cool new weapon, what do you think? You know, it happens both ways. Uh, and a lot of this communication is a good thing uh, so that the companies that work for DOD better understand what the military wants and needs uh, and can deliver that at a, a more, you know, in a more competitive and cost-effective way. Uh, usually the typical, you know, acquisition process will originate in DOD. And so the military will come up with its own requirements for what it thinks it needs. And then it goes out through a very structured process uh, and starts a conversation with industry, not just one company, but any companies uh, that might be interested in bidding. Uh, they'll usually have something like an, an RFI, a request for information, uh, where, where they will formally solicit uh, that uh, information and have those conversations. 
Uh, and then it'll progress to a request for proposals. And that's where a lot of the one-on-one conversations will shut down uh, because they don't want to give any one company an unfair advantage in the competition. Uh, and companies will then, you know, submit their bids to the government uh, and then select a winner. Now, once you select a winner on a program, then there's a steady back and forth conversation between the government and the contractor uh, about what is needed, how they're performing, uh, whether or not they're, the contractor is living up to the expectations of the government. Now, that's kind of the traditional model uh, for defense acquisitions. Uh, an alternative model that is often, you know, not as successful for companies is companies can go off and try to anticipate what the military is going to need in the future before there's a formal requirement and invest their own money. Uh, so take some share of their own corporate profit, profits and invest it in kind of leading uh, research and development, cutting-edge technology, uh, and then come back to the government when they think they found something uh, that could be useful to government uh, and try to tell the military, like, hey, look, we have developed this new technology. We think it can help you with this set of problems. You know, what often happens then is the military will look at it and say, hey, that's great. I don't have a requirement for that. Come back to me when I have a requirement. When it comes to selling to foreign militaries, how does a company go about that? Because I'm sure the U.S. government doesn't want a company selling to a less-than-friendly country. So so how does that system work? Well, there's a whole complex uh, system for doing this. Uh, it's called ITAR, the International Trade and Arms Regulations, uh, where basically if it's anything that might potentially be a security threat, uh, that you have to go through the government. Uh, and, you know, that gets negotiated through DOD and the State Department will go out uh, and they'll have to approve uh, certain types of weapon sales to different companies. So, you know, you can't just go out and sell a fighter jet to any country. Uh, it has to go through the government to get approval. Uh, and that's where they do the vetting and make sure that, hey, you're not selling this to someone that could potentially be an adversary uh, or someone who, even if they're not an adversary, they may have loose technology controls, and we don't want our advanced technology you know, accidentally ending up in the hands of an adversary. Uh, and so the, really the, the onus is on the government there to control those technologies, and they have the ability to do that through ITAR. And that even applies to older weapons. I know when the U.S. retired the F-14 fighter plane made famous in Top Gun in the 80s, they destroyed them all because uh, Iran was flying them and they didn't want them to have any parts. Yeah, that's, so that's an interesting example where, you know, back in the 1970s you know, when we were friendly with the regime in Iran, uh, you know, the government approved the export of F-14s. And so Iran had uh, a fleet of F-14s. And then, of course, after the change in the regime there, um, you know, we cut them off, wouldn't sell them anymore, wouldn't sell them spare parts. And then, you know, when we started retiring our fleet of F-14s from the U.S. Navy, uh, we didn't want, uh, you know, to sell those used F-14s to other countries because we were worried that, hey, maybe some of the spare parts, maybe these aircraft eventually one day get stripped down. They lose control of the spare parts and they could find their way into Iran and help the Iranians, you know, continue to support their fleet of F-14s. And so, you know, sometimes you have to find different ways of cutting off uh, the flow of weapons or spare parts 
uh, to countries, especially a country that was friendly and then flipped. So when a private company sells through the U.S. government to a foreign uh, national or a foreign country, are those weapons supposed to be used in U.S. national interest or to keep the U.S. safe, or are they for defense or offense uh, of, the, of the buyer? You know, when we're selling to a foreign country, uh, the foreign country, you know, they have use of those weapons, and once they have them, they can use them however they choose to. It's, you know, their own sovereign weapon system at that point. Uh, the vetting comes in the decision of whether or not we should sell. Uh, and, you know, part of the decision-making process for exporting arms is, you know, understanding is this going to be in the security interest of the United States to export this. And in some cases, uh, the case may be or the case could be made that selling arms to another country uh, will enable them to defend themselves and defend their own interests, uh, which then, you know, indirectly helps United States national security. Uh, if we believe that their security is in our best interest, then helping them defend themselves would also be uh, in our best interest. Uh, and so that decision has to be made on a case-by-case -case basis. But ultimately, once you export weapons, you don't have control of them anymore. I know companies like Raytheon Missile Systems go to trade shows like the Paris Air Show. Do the private companies pursue foreign clients, or are they just there to let the foreign clients know potentially what's available, and then they have to go through DOD? I mean, it's a bit of both. And so, you know, U.S. defense firms will go out and try to court foreign sales. At the same time, though, they have to be working with the U.S. government to make sure that they can get approval uh, to sell to those foreign countries that may be interested. And, you know, defense exports um, are a significant, you know, uh, uh, source of income for some of these companies. And, you know, historically, if you look back, when U.S. defense spending tends to go down, that's when U.S. defense companies look to export more. Uh, to try to, you know, soften some of the impact of a downturn in U.S. spending. So current events like what's going on with Iran, what does that do to a company like Raytheon? If the United States gets into a, a large-scale shooting war with an adversary like Iran or whoever the case may be, um, one of the things that happens is a lot of missiles and munitions get used up uh, in a conflict. And so that's one of the first things we'll see from the military is an additional request uh, for funding to uh, buy more of the missiles and munitions to replace the ones that were used in conflict. And a company like Raytheon then is well positioned to get a lot of that work because they make a lot of the missiles and munitions that get used in conflicts. What's the future of, of weapons makers, do you think, as, as wars change uh, over time? You know, looking out at future, um, what we can tell is a couple of things. One is even though the defense budget today uh, is at a pretty high level by historical standards, uh, the size of the military continues to decline uh, in terms of, you know, the number of planes in the inventory, uh, you know, the number of troops that we have uh, in the military. Uh, the trends are, are going down even though the budget has been going up. And part of the reason for that is it's getting more and more expensive to operate you know, the weapon systems that we buy, uh, to maintain them, and to pay the personnel 
uh, our personnel costs have grown tremendously over the past 20 years. Uh, and so I think you know, when the military is looking at this and looking at the threat environment we see and you know, advances in the military capabilities of other countries like Russia and China and all the other countries that Russia and China sell their arms to, you know, we're looking at an environment where it's going to be harder and harder for our military to operate. So we need more advanced military capabilities. And so I think part of the trend we're seeing in the future is uh, a shift away from investing in really big platforms, big expensive platforms that take a long time to field, uh, and instead shifting towards buying new payloads, new sensors, new weapon, you know, new uh, missiles and bombs that can be developed more quickly, uh, can respond to threats more quickly, and don't take as long to field. Just to make sure our listeners uh, understand what you're talking about, for example, with Raytheon, they make the Tomahawk cruise missile. So keep making the cruise missile, just change what's inside it and what the missile does is what you're saying, but the, the body is still the same. Yes, right. You know, upgrade the the sensors on the cruise missile, upgrade the communication systems on it, the navigation systems, uh, but keep making the missile. And then, you know, in a, a more macro sense, invest in cruise missiles and not necessarily new designs for the submarines and ships that they are launched from. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us. No problem. Glad I could help. That was Todd Harrison, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You can find more data on Raytheon's foreign sales on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. You can suggest ideas for the show and find all of our episodes online at azpm.org. Subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. If you like our show, tell your friends about us. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.